I'm on. There we are. Uh, Acts 25 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. If you want to flip over to Acts 25, we're uh, we're picking things up in a town called Caesarea around 59 A.D. Uh, Paul has been under house arrest now for two years at the hand of Governor Felix, and the part of Felix is now being played by Festus. So. Remember those those sh- those shows that you used to watch, and they would like they just change the actor all of a sudden, and you like and they just have that little departive. Yeah, that's what's happening now. So Felix got fired by Nero because he was kind of a jerk, and that the Jewish people didn't like him, and he, they just the outcry became so great that they got rid of Felix, and now Festus comes in, and that you got to love that name. I just every time I hear it, guess what I think of? I want to call him Uncle Festus, but I won't. I'll refrain because I have self control. So here, you know, what happens is, is Festus shows up, um, you know, he's, he's the new governor, pretty exciting, you know, you get this new position, you show up and, and you get into your, your office and you're looking around and there's this piece of paper in the inbox that says the Apostle Paul or Paul of Tarsus or whatever they refer to him as, Prisoner Paul. And he's like, well, what's this? Well, that's, uh, that's this guy over here, Paul. Oh, what's, what's he in for? Uh, we, we don't know. How long has he been here? Two years. And you don't know what he's done? Not really, no. It's like, well, what am I supposed to do? We don't know. Uh, but it's a big deal, so <laughs> congratulations on your new appointment. You know, you need to figure out Paul. So he just inherits this problem of Paul. Uh, as I said, there's no actual charges of wrongdoing, but the Romans at this point, they just haven't wanted to make the Jewish leaders mad, so they kind of just stuck him in custody and, and left him there. They've locked him up. And, and the interesting thing is this has been two years now, and the Jewish people, you think, you know, two years have gone by. They've forgotten about this. This is just water under the bridge, you know, whatever. <laughs> nope. <laughs> they know how to hold a grudge. And so they haven't forgot about this at all. They are they're, uh, just have just as much disdain for Paul as they've ever had. And you think about that. If you're consumed with something for two years, if you're that angry for two years, that's, that's crippling kind of stuff, you know. If, if you've been holding on to something that you can think of from two years ago that you're still holding on to today, that's poison in your system. Um, you know, there's things to be mad about for sure, but uh, that's kind of hard to think about. So anyway, the, the Jews convince the, the newly appointed Festus to send, to, they're trying to convince him to send Paul back to Jerusalem for another trial, but it's not really a trial at all. They, they just are setting up another ambush to kill Paul. Verse 9 tells us that uh, Festus wanted to do the Jews a favor, so he, he kind of asked Paul, hey, what do you think about you and me? Uh, we'll, we'll head up to Jerusalem. We'll go f- just hash this whole thing out. It'll be kind of like a field trip, Paul. You've been, you've been locked up here for two years. Does that sound like fun? And, and Paul's like, no, it doesn't sound like fun at all because he knows exactly what to expect in this regard. Uh, he knows the lengths that they will go to to get rid of him. And, and you have to remember that Paul used to, he used to be on that team. So he knows their playbook quite well. He knows what they're capable of and what they'll do. So the other thing Paul knows is that Jerusalem is not on the way to Rome. That's the opposite direction of where God told him he was going. And so Paul's now in this, in this spot where they're trying to get him to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's supposed to go to Rome. And so he's forced to appeal to Caesar, uh, which means he just bought a non-refundable one-way ticket to Rome. That's where he's heading. Appealing to Caesar was the right of every Roman citizen. Um, it's kind of like when we would you know, take our case to the Supreme Court. That was the final, final stopping point as far as figuring out justice went. Uh, not a lot of people did this because... It's kind of a big deal to, to take your case to the emperor in Rome. And, and, but Paul, 
has decided to do this. So verse 12 is where we ended last week, and it says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now this is not an ideal situation for the newly appointed governor. Um, His political goal was to keep Rome happy, and at the same time, to keep the Jews happy. And this outcome wasn't going to do either of those things. The Jews won't be happy because Paul will continue to breathe air. You know, that's, they don't want that. And the Rome won't be happy because Festus is about to walk into their courtroom with this guy in chains uh, who hasn't broken any laws. And so the first question Nero is going to ask when Paul is brought in is, you know, what, what charges do you bring against this man? And Festus is going to be standing there kind of shrugging his shoulders and going, I, I don't know. We had nothing. That's not, and this is Nero, by the way. I mean, think about Nero for a second. Uh, Nero wasn't crazy yet, but he was right at the tipping point. Like, so the cheese was still on the cracker right now, but, you know, that's kind of where, where we're at. Um, so, again, you don't want to just go and make Nero mad. Fortunately for Festus, though, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice are about to arrive in Caesarea for a visit. Now, this is uh, Agrippa II is what they call, he, he's known as, as that. Uh, his sister Bernice, and then a couple weeks ago, we talked about Drusilla, who is the wife of Felix, who died in, in Pompeii. There, she's another sibling. So there's, there, all three of these are siblings, Agrippa, Bernice, and Drusilla. Um, Agrippa comes from a long line of, I would say, Jewish kings, kind of in quotes, because they weren't really Jewish. They were, I think, Edomites somewhat and somewhat Jewish and kind of a mix of these things. But Rome... Uh, appointed the, the Herodian dynasty to kind of oversee Jerusalem. So they weren't really Romans, but they were appointed by Rome. They weren't really Jewish. They kind of were, but that's who was in charge. And so if you, if you know the term Herod, you're familiar with these guys. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was responsible for the murder of all male children under the age of two when Jesus was born because he was trying to um, prevent the Messiah from being born. So if you were in the Bethlehem area at that time, it was just horrific what he did. That's great-grandpa. Grandpa is Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist and was responsible in part for Jesus' execution as well. Uh, his dad, Agrippa I, was responsible for the execution of the brother of Jesus, James. And he was also the one who was struck dead when he was in also in Caesarea. He came out one morning and you know, uh, they, they were shouting, a man and not a God, a man and not a God. And you remember, I won't go into details because you probably just had breakfast, but bad things happened to, to him. And he, he died. God struck him dead there. So this may be one of the worst family trees ever. Uh, these guys are just horrible. And there's bad things about Agrippa too that I'm not even going to talk about because they're just icky on a Sunday morning. So you want to look it up, go for it. But icky, we'll just leave it at that. Now, um, King Agrippa would have been king over this region that Festus is in charge of, but when his dad died, he was only 17 years old. So they didn't give him this territory. They gave him kind of an easier territory uh, and, and then appointed Felix and Festus to kind of govern this region. But Agrippa was still responsible for the Jewish temple and for appointing high priests. So uh, that's a lot, but I kind of like the history of it. It's interesting to, to kind of put these pieces together. And then just a little bit further, if you, if you remember, like in Jesus' time, you had um, Herod, Antipas was the governor or the king over Jerusalem, you know, at that time. And Pilate was the governor. And now you've got Festus is the governor and Agrippa is, is the king. So, so you kind of, just to put it in perspective, this is kind of like those two. And in fact, there's a ton of similarities between uh, what happened to Jesus and his trial and what happens to Paul and the way they move through. It's, it's pretty fascinating to look at if you're ever interested in that. 
bottom line here is that Festus is, is really stoked to hear that Agrippa's coming to town. This is good for him because Agrippa is somebody who understands all things Jewish. He, he'll understand the reason for the hostility that exists between the Jewish leaders and Paul. And, and so this is good. This is the perfect opportunity for him to try to figure out what to do with Paul and more importantly, what to charge Paul with. So we pick things up in verse 13. It says this. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. But I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. Well, that wasn't the custom of the Romans. It wasn't the custom of anybody for the most part. That's, that's just bad. Ju- that's a bad court system. If you, do, you just can like condemn people that aren't even there to defend themselves or there's no case being made. Nobody would like that system. The Jews wouldn't even allow for that. But of course, in this instance, they're willing to give it a shot because, you know, here's a new governor that maybe he'll want to make them happy and just say, sure, you know, we'll condemn Paul. Why not? But they, he doesn't do that. He knows better. Jerusalem um, was, like I said, part of Festus's territory to govern. So it makes sense that he would travel there to introduce himself, kind of do a meet and greet. He's the new guy in town. He wants to meet, meet these guys. But he had no idea what kind of buzzsaw he was walking into here. He's thinking, this is going to be nice. I'll go down. I'll introduce myself. We'll have some more d'oeuvres. We'll, we'll chat. We'll get to know each other. And they're just waiting for him like, you know, what are we going to do with Paul? So in an attempt to figure this out, he, he ends up inviting the Jewish leaders to come back to Caesarea, where Paul is, and to try to hash this whole thing out. Uh, kind of funny, because that's already been done a couple times now, but he's thinking, you know, maybe he'll be able to do it. So he goes on further to explain to Agrippa in verse 17. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man, Paul, to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in the case of his the such evils that I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. This is kind of comical to me because Festus calls the court. You kind of see him, you know, okay, hits the gavel. Court is now in session. And he's bracing himself for these gruesome details that they're about to bring against Paul. You know, what has this guy done? These guys hate him. For two years, they've hated him. They want him condemned. You know, what's, what are they going to say next? You know, is this mass murder? I mean, is this a car bombing? Has he, uh, did he try to overthrow the government? You know, does he insist on using Comic Sans as his preferred font? I mean, it's got to be something serious for this to happen. That was for Tammy. She's not even here, but she'll listen to it online. It must be something very heinous though, because why else would you hold on to a grudge like this? So Festus braces himself for the worst only to hear them say, you know, this guy doesn't agree with our theology and, and he, he says that this guy named Jesus uh, isn't dead. And you can kind of picture Festus going, really? This is what's taken two years? This is what's taken everybody's time? This is what you're bringing to me right now? Now, of course, as Christians, we understand the implications of what's really happening here. Th- this has to do with the resurrection, which is everything to the Christian faith. And it has to do with the difference between salvation by works and salvation by grace. So this is no small thing. But, but as far as Festus goes... It doesn't make any sense at all. He doesn't get it one bit. This would be like two quantum physics guys coming to my living room, you know, and and saying, Brent, we need you to settle a debate for us. I mean, I'd just be sitting there going, you got the wrong guy for this. You know, you can talk all night long and I'm going to be just like, you know, 
the no no clue here and that's where festus is right now in verse 20 he says that he says being at a loss how to investigate these questions i asked paul whether he wanted to go to jerusalem and be tried regarding you know these things but when paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So he's explained, I tried to get Paul to go there. He wouldn't do it. He appealed to Caesar, and that's where we're at. So verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. So Festus said, tomorrow you will hear him. You can almost hear the sigh of relief from Festus. Like, okay, Agrippa's going for it. He's going he's gonna to sit in and listen to this, and this is my ticket out of this predicament I'm in. So in verse 23, it says, so the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. This has turned out to be quite the event. This isn't just Festus, Agrippa and Paul. This is now, you know, the whole, all the, all the, all the cool people are coming to this thing. And it says that, you know, this with great pomp and, and it's the word, the Greek word is fantasia, where we get fantasy from, but it's just the idea of pageantry, you know. And I'm, I'm picturing Paul walking in here and looking around and going, what have I gotten into today? You know, it just, you know, you think one after another, Paul's like, oh, here we go again. And this scene kind of reminds me of what we read in Acts 12 about Agrippa's dad. It, you know, he was in Caesarea also, and it may have been the same venue when he came in with great pomp. Josephus records that he wore this this royal robe made of silver that the morning sun just you know, it was like, like he was wearing, he was all glittered up, basically. He was bedazzled. <laughs> and, uh, and all the people, when they heard him and they saw him, that's what ca- caused him to cry out a God and not a man. And so, you know, you've got this kind of similar situation here. But the cool thing is, this is one of the largest and most prominent groups that Paul has ever stood in front of. And, and, and it, he doesn't also have to contend with the animosity of the Jewish leaders. They're not there to interrupt him and accuse him and all this. So he's got kind of a pretty cool opportunity here. Verse 24, it says, And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I have found that he had done nothing deserving death. And he himself appealed to the emperor, and I decided to go ahead and send him. I <laughs> like that. Sure you did. You didn't have a choice, buddy, but I decided. You see how they do that? But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. <laughs> it's like, you think? It's like, yeah, that does seem unreasonable. I'll agree with that. It's ridiculous. And again, Picture Nero, even more ridiculous, right? So uh, uh, in verse, I'm just going to transition real quickly to chapter 26 and read a couple verses for, um, for context. But it says, so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul finally has somebody that will understand what's really going on here. And, and, and he's excited about that opportunity. And, and that's unfortunately where we kind of leave off today. So it's like, stay tuned next week because 
the next section is so long and I didn't want to interrupt it. So do you remember when you were kids and you had to, you couldn't binge watch a television show like they can now and you had to wait sometimes a whole week, like to be continued would show up on the screen and it was like, no, or sometimes it was like a whole season. So you young people now know how hard we had it. <laughs> now you can just watch them and watch them and watch them. So um, if you want to, it's okay. You can read ahead. We don't mind. If you want to pick up your Bible this week and read through, I would encourage you to do that. And I don't want to ruin anything for you, but a bunch of people are about to hear the gospel. Surprising, right? Paul's going to, guess what Paul's going to say, what he's, what he's going to tell them. He's going to tell them about Jesus. Yeah, big shock. So some takeaways from, from this section. The, the first thing we see is God-given opportunities to share the gospel. You know, Paul could have easily gotten frustrated with these circumstances. I, I can just see Paul going again with the trial, you know, one trial, two trial, three trial, four. This is kind of getting old. It's even funny preaching this. I feel like, you know, Terry mentioned Groundhog Day last week, and it's like, are we preaching about a trial of Paul again? Yes, we are. But he kept going through them. And imagine how Paul felt. This could have gotten really exasperating unless you see that it's really God at work. I mean, you think about it, since this whole thing started, Paul has addressed a huge crowd in Jerusalem, including Claudius Lysias and his men. He's addressed a, Jew, a Jewish council in Jerusalem. He's addressed the Roman governor Felix in Caesarea, the Roman governor Festus in Caesarea, and now he gets to address, address King Agrippa and a whole gaggle of, dig, of dignitaries. I think that's how you refer to dignitaries, a bunch of them. And you remember what Paul, or I'm sorry, what God said, Back in 9.15, Acts 9.15, when he recruited Paul to Team Jesus, remember when Paul was going to destroy Christians and then God kind of said, no, we're going to flip you around and you're going to start going the other way now? This is what he said. Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And that's exactly what God's doing with Paul. And it reminds me of what Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 10. In verse 18, he said, you will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers, but this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time, for it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. So not only does God provide the opportunities, he even provides the words we'll need when we're in those opportunities. It's pretty nice of him. It's really amazing to see all that God has orchestrated through the, the bad things that happened to Paul. And I say bad things in quotes because we would look at them perhaps as bad things, and, and Paul might have even at times, but they weren't to God. God has just granted Paul VIP access to people he could never get in front of. I mean, if Paul would have tried, like, you know, if he would have called the secretary and said, hey, I'd, I'd like to talk to Agrippa this week about some things, they would have hung up on him and said, get lost. And now he is standing in front of all of these people with an open invitation to preach the gospel. Only God can do that, right? It's cool. And, and I just think about how easy it would have been for Paul to fall into that why me mindset. I don't know if you're like me, but I, I'm, I'm a I can fall into why me very easily. Lord, why me? Why do I have to go through this? Why is my life like this? How come I'm having a week like this? I do that all the time. And Paul didn't, you know, maybe he had times when he did, but at this point, he looks around at the opportunities God has uniquely prepared him for, and he's willing to suffer through these inconveniences because 
he realized it's an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And that's more important to him than the other stuff. So God, God promised Paul that he would give him opportunities. He didn't tell him how those opportunities might come about. Like you're going to get abducted, then you're going to be beaten, arrested, uh, falsely accused, wrongfully imprisoned, tried in court over and over and over again. Sound like fun? It's like, no, fortunately, God doesn't always give us a preview of coming attractions, right? He might tell us he's going to give us opportunities. He doesn't always tell us how that's going to come about, which is probably a good thing because Paul might have gone the other direction. You know, he headed to Tarsus again. Are there circumstances in your life that you're not happy about right now? Sometimes those circumstances are there because of bad choices you've made. You know, that's the truth. Um, God can still use those. But sometimes those circumstances are God-ordained opportunities for you to shine light into dark places. And maybe that's what God's doing through these circumstances. Maybe he's providing an opportunity for you. What if he's granting you VIP access to people who need to hear the gospel who in turn might believe and preach that same gospel to countless others. Um, I used to have to go to um, training. I was in the copier printer repair world, fixing copiers. That was my, my job. And so I, I, every you know, year I'd have to go two or three times to different places. And I don't like to travel. Um, I especially alone. I like to be home where it's cozy and familiar and nice. That's just who I am. So the idea of going on vacation is like I just want to stay home. I know that's weird. Nobody has ever accused me of being adventurous, and I don't think they ever will. So I would, you know, I would have to go to these schools, and they would range from one week to six weeks, depending on the equipment I was getting trained on. Um, and I would be training alongside other technicians from all over the place, and usually pretty good-sized classes. So, you know, you're spending eight hours together a day, and then at night we would usually have dinner together. The weekends you'd have to find something to do, so you'd, you'd, you'd just hang out with these guys. All of that equals opportunity if you're looking for it right and well it's wonderful to have opportunity to share the gospel it's more important to have a willingness to share the gospel that's where it gets hard for us right of course we want the opportunity i i, I mean I, I look forward to like people walking with me on the street falling on their knees and saying what must i do to be saved you know <laughs> guess how often that's happened it has but not very often right usually there's a little more work involved than that But God can put us in the perfect spot at the perfect time with the perfect audience. But we need to be willing to tell people about him. And I have to admit, that's not easy for me. Uh, I'm not a gifted evangelist. It's not my second nature. You know, even just trying to drum up conversation is like angst to me sometimes. I don't like small talk. I, I I love real conversations, but that stuff's hard for me. But I really care about what happens to people. Can you say that? When you really stop and think about somebody and their eternity, do you care what happens to people? Do you love people like that? If you do, you're going to be compelled (laughs) to talk to them. Even if it's hard, you're going to do this. So when I would go to those training classes, even though my tendency was to keep to myself, stay in my room, put my head down and just get through it until I could go home where it's cozy, uh, I would often take advantage of those opportunities to get to know these guys, uh, to learn about them, and ultimately to tell them about my Savior. And sometimes it went pretty well, and sometimes it didn't. I remember one week I was in Salt Lake. Um, It was only a one-week school, and so a one-week school, it's real easy to say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and just be extra introverted, which means selfish, 
if you don't know what that this week. And I'm just going to like, I don't have to really invest because it's only a week. We're not even going to have a weekend together. It'll, it won't be a big deal. And so I kind of just really didn't look for opportunities or take advantage of them that week. And so we, it was time to go home and me and this other guy that I'd been in class with that week, I can't remember his name. That's how invested I was. Good job, Pastor Brent. I wasn't a pastor then. I was just a copier text, totally different. Uh, anyway, we go to the airport at the same time. We have a couple hours to kill before our flight different flights, but, you know, let's hang out. So we're walking through the airport, talking, and, and again, I'm not really even looking for opportunities here. I look up, and I see on an escalator uh, a very old lady, and probably like what looked like her daughter in front of her, but there's nobody else on the escalator. She's, as, as she's going up, she's got her feet on the escalator, which are going up, and she leans her body against the wall, the sidewall, which doesn't move. So her feet are going up, but her body stops going up. And I'm looking at this, and I'm quite a ways off, and I know you're looking at me and thinking, well, this guy looks pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. <laughs> Nobody thinks that either. Uh, I, I didn't even hesitate. I just knew I had to try because I knew what was going to happen if I didn't. So I, st- I just took off. Didn't say anything. Started running. And I didn't think there was any chance that I was going to make it. And I don't know if God gave me, you know, superpowers or what. But I got up the escalator right when she hit that tipping point and was about to fall. And I can't imagine. This woman was old. I mean, old, you know, brittle. This would have been, I mean, anybody falling down an escalator, bad. But... This would have been like glass, you know. Um, and I, I just as gently and as perfectly timed as possible, I, I caught her as she was falling back. And I remember she kind of looked up at me like, you know. <laughs> she had no idea there was anybody behind her. She didn't know where I'd come from. But I caught this woman and I, I you know, I think it probably saved her life, which is kind of cool. We get to the top and I hand her off to her daughter and she just can't believe, you know, this almost happened. And anyway, I get back to my classmate and he says to me, man, if your plane crashes tonight, you're definitely going to heaven. <laughs> and, and so the theologian in me is like, well, I can't just let this go. So I have an opportunity. And so I had to share with this guy, you know what? Sorry, I get emotional thinking about it. That's one work. That's one good work I have to put in my pile of good works. But I have a pile of bad works that's like a tower going up into heaven. And if I, if I have to count on my good works, then all I, I, the rest of my life I'm going to have to run around looking for old ladies to save on escalators. You know, I, I don't have a lot of good works. And, and ultimately, if it's up, if it's up to me to, to work my way to heaven, I'm not going to make it. And I got to tell him this. So I said, I have to take my good works and my bad works and throw them in a heap and run to Jesus as my only hope for salvation. That's all I got. And so I begged, I begged to Jesus for mercy, and I explained the gospel to him. I explained how Jesus came and stood in my place as a sinner on the cross, took my sin and my punishment so that I could be forgiven, and that by placing my faith in what he's done for me, I can go to heaven. So if my plane crashes tonight or a week from now or a month from now or a year from now, I know I'll stand in his presence because of his works, his good works, not my good works. And it was really cool to have an opportunity that I didn't quite frankly even want that God gave me anyway. That's how he works. I have no idea where I'm at. I know where I'm at. I'm not like, you know, (laughs) not that old. Yeah, hey. There's no doubt that God has opportunities for you. Good works that he's prepared beforehand that you should walk in is what Ephesians chapter 2 says. He's preparing opportunities for us every day, every week. He sets the stage for these things for us. Are we looking for them? Where will God send you this week? 
Who will he put you in contact with? What opportunities will he place before you? And what will you do with those opportunities? This is what Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I like that picture of your speech being seasoned with salt. It, it sounds like something that when, when they get a taste of what you're saying, they'll say, I like that. I want more of that. They'll be intrigued. It's almost like, tell me more. And imagine like an opposite thing, like having your speech seasoned with vinegar or with cayenne pepper, right? That's what I see a lot of Christians doing on Facebook and stuff like that. It's like, do you think what you're saying is actually going to cause somebody to say, hey, tell me more about this God that you serve, you know? Or are they going to say, you're a jerk. I don't want nothing to do with you. Our, our speech is supposed to be seasoned with salt. Ephesians 5, a parallel verse to this one in Colossians says, make the most of the time because the days are evil. That's an interesting thing to think about, right? Do you think that right now as you see evil kind of growing up around us? And, and, and the sky's darkening a little bit and people kind of, you know, evil seems to be ramping up. And do you think, hey, opportunities, <laughs> I can make the most of this. Is that what you're thinking? It, you know, I, I don't think that way often, but that's what God told us to do. Make the most of the opportunities because the days are evil. The idea is that as it gets darker and darker and darker, that people will start saying, I don't like this darkness. I don't like this evil that's going up around me. And they'll start looking for light. And there you stand with the light of the gospel of grace to offer to those people who need it. You know, I've mentioned before, but one of the easiest questions I've learned to ask people is a very simple one. Um, if, if I meet somebody and I'm talking to them, eventually I'll just ask them, hey, are you a churchgoer? Is that an offensive question? It's actually not. It, it's, it's probably, I mean, you think about like some of the, the evangelist things that we've learned in the past. It's like, you know, if you were to die tonight, <laughs> you know, that's, that's like, whoa, easy does it, fella. You know, you're in the checkout line. If you were to die tonight, you know, I, I'm just trying to bag your groceries, man. I don't want to think about that right now. But if you ask somebody if they're a churchgoer, that's almost a compliment. If somebody asked me that, I'd be looking at my wife going, you hear that, honey? He looked at me and thought, churchgoer, you know. <sighs> you know that's what I would think in my mind. I wouldn't think, you know, that's offensive, you know. Now, they might say, no, no, I'm not. Get away from me, you know. But I'm always amazed at how people respond to that question because people will start to say, you know what I used to be? I grew up in the church. And they start just telling you. It's amazing what comes out of their mouth next. Or they'll say, you know, I've always wanted to, to try a church and go to one. And it's a very simple question to ask somebody. And, and where you go from, from there is pretty easy. It kind of works itself out. Again, if they say, no, get away from me, you know what to do. If they say, you know, I, I'd really, no, but I'd like to be. Well, the next question or the next thing you say is, um, hopefully you say, is I know of a great church right here in this community that I would love to invite you to. And you should come check it out. Now, you may also get more opportunity. Just inviting somebody to church isn't evangelism. That, that helps. That gets them here and it gets them around other Christians and it gets, you know, the opportunities there. But you can start talking to somebody about why don't you like church anymore? You grew up in church and you're not there anymore. What happened? And start listening. You know, being a good listener is, is probably one of the most, that one of the biggest keys to evangelism that we forget. We think we need to just, just talk and talk and talk. Listen, learn, find out about them. They're probably hurting. They probably have been you know, you know what it's like to be in church sometimes. I mean, sometimes you get stomped on. Sometimes you get betrayed. Sometimes bad things happen. And you, you have an opportunity to really get to know somebody and, and hopefully season your speech with salt, give them an answer. Um, you never know. 
So look for opportunities, make the most of those opportunities, and then trust God with the outcome. This is my favorite part because it's not up to me to save people. If it were up to me, I don't know what I would do. I remember like that, you know, I was a kid. Uh, this is an old comedian said this, but like Smokey the Bear on the TV would say, only you can prevent forest fires. And I was like, me? You know, it's like, that's a lot of responsibility for like a six-year-old. Um, and I used to think that way about evangelism. Like only I can save people. It's up to me. And if I don't do it, you know, that's not, that's not the case. God has asked us to spread seeds, throw seeds, water those seeds if you come upon them. Um, but as far as creating belief in somebody, I wish I could do that, <laughs> but I can't. That's up to God. So be faithful to share. The outcome is up to God. He's just asked you to tell people. And, you know, I wonder sometimes that I think we overthink evangelism and we almost, uh, is meeting Jesus the greatest thing that's ever happened to you? <laughs> it is for me, hands down. There's no, why wouldn't we want to tell people that? If you found a guy, you know, over there in the parking lot that could cure every disease, would you tell people or would you think, you know, I don't want to bother them. I don't, want, I don't want them to get mad at me. If you found somebody that could allow you to live forever, there was somebody that you had that answer, would you take somebody, would you say, hey, I got somebody you should meet? This is who Jesus is. Jesus is the answer to everything that ails us. And people need to meet him. So don't, don't think in terms of like, you know, evangelism isn't winning an argument. It's not trying to strong arm somebody into believing something. We just tell them about the goodness of God in our life and who, who Christ is for us, that he's my sin bearer, that he's my Lord, that he's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, and let God worry about the outcome. You know, when I would go to those classes, I would share Christ with people from Texas, Alaska, Virginia, Canada, Wyoming, Georgia. I can't even think of all the guys that I met from different places in the world. And I, I put seeds in their pockets, and they went home. And I don't know what happens. I wonder, like Paul, he doesn't know. You don't, you don't see like King Agrippa falling before, you know, ah, I need to repent and trust. You don't know what happens. Paul did all these things, but did the gospel go forward? Did it ripple out to where we are today here in Sun River? Absolutely. And I wonder what will happen. You know, the story's not, you know, I don't know the answer, but I know one guy, I shared the gospel with him uh, probably three or four times in one week. We were together. Uh, we, he got back to his home in Seattle, and he texted me one day, and he said, Hey, Brent, I accepted Jesus as my, sorry, as my Lord and Savior last night. What do you think about that? <laughs> and I'm like, I think that's pretty fantastic, man. And now he's, his wife is a believer, and they foster kids who are, you know, it's just so cool when God uses you like that. It's the greatest thing ever. And, and it reminds us that God used somebody to get that message to you, right? Somebody was faithful to share that with you so that you could know him. And, uh, you know, we, we, we're getting ready to have communion today, which I am so thankful for. Communion is just a reminder, a powerful reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. This really is kind of the gospel before us. Jesus' body was broken. Yours should have been, but he willingly let his be broken for you because he loves you, because he felt pity for you as a sinner. And so he went and allowed his body to be broken in your place. And his blood was shed to cover your sins. He was innocent. He was perfect. He was God in the flesh. And he allowed that to happen for you so that you could have life, forgiveness, eternity with him. And, and we have to just simply place our faith in that. Turn from, turn from our sin, repent from, from what we are and what we're doing, and turn to him for life. 
And that's what this table represents. If you're a believer today, this table is for you. This is Christ for you. Enjoy it. Worship him. If you're not a believer, today's the day of salvation. Ask Christ right now to be your Lord and Savior. Turn to him and enjoy this communion. Father, we, uh, we're thankful so much for these, these narratives and acts that tell us these stories of, of um, faithfulness, of people to go out and share the gospel with others and, and, and then people responding to the gospel. There's nothing greater than seeing somebody come to know you. So we pray, Father, that this week you would give us opportunities, that we would look for those opportunities and that we would act upon them. And, and Lord, just use this church mightily in this community to be a bright light, to be um, seasoned with salt, Lord, so that many people would come to know you, especially as we see the days becoming more evil. So thank, thank for, uh, we're thankful, Lord, that you've called us your children, that you've made a way for us to come to you and have a relationship. We thank you for this table, for the body and blood of Christ that we can remember now and celebrate in Jesus' name. Amen.